Well, I'd like to begin by saying how good it is to be back. This past month was a five-Sunday month, and so I was gone a little extra time away this time. It is good to be back. Someone had asked this morning if I would uh, give an update on how things have been going and what all I've been doing, and I'll be glad to do that. I will think I'll take a minute or so this evening in our service to do that, if you'd like. Also, today has been proclaimed, by whom I don't know, but today has been proclaimed Pulpit Freedom Sunday, which is to say that the pastor is supposed to feel free. Mind you, this is not the government saying this, but the pastors are supposed to be free and bold to mention their candidate of choice for the election coming up. I don't think I'll do that. But as I always do, I will give you good, sound, biblical advice And that is, make sure you vote right. (laughs) Romans chapter (laughs) 5. Romans chapter 5. Actually, it was two months ago that uh, we began our survey of Romans, and somehow last month, We did not take it up, but you who are here then will remember that we looked through in a Sunday school hour, Romans chapters 1 through 3, and then in the morning worship service, chapters, uh, the end of chapter 3 through chapter 4, and and then in the evening service, Romans chapter 5. And today I'd like to look at, just briefly at Romans 5 again, and then take us through Romans chapter 8. Please be aware, settle in comfortably, that many preachers have taken months and months and months on end for this past uh, portion of Scripture, but we're going to try it in one message. I hope the survey will be helpful to see Paul's argument in whole. For beginning this morning, let's look at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Whereas by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, how we thank you for your word and how we praise you for the wonderful plan of redemption that you have revealed to us in your word. It would have been enough that you had just saved us. What a remarkable thing just that would have been. But you have revealed that saving plan to us so that here we may rejoice in it in anticipation of the fullness of the glory that is to come. So we pray that you will help us to gain a better understanding and appreciation of your work for us through this portion of your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may remember that we saw that Paul's theme for the book of Romans is taken, sort of his text, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is, the gospel is not just a revelation of the love of God. It is specifically here, he says, a revelation of the righteousness of God. And in fact, it is a righteousness that is received by faith and nothing but faith. I think all of that is what's involved in verse 17 of chapter 1. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Faith, Righteousness or justification is, in fact, in the end, not something we give God. Although we are obligated to give him righteousness, at the end of the day, the gospel tells us it is something he has given us in Jesus Christ. And so first of all, chapter 1, verses 18 and following, all the way through halfway of chapter 3, Paul expounds the need for justification, the need for this righteousness. We have all rebelled against the revelation that we have received from God, and that is true of every last man, woman, and child who has ever lived. Some may have received less, some more revelation from God. Some may be living in places where they've never heard of Jesus or even Moses, for that matter, But still, the revelation from God that they have received, even in the created order, in their own heart of hearts, created in the image of God, they recognize the rightness of certain things, like honesty, the golden rule, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, and so on. And yet they've rebelled against it. And that is true of every last one of us, even those of us who have received specific and detailed revelation from God. God, in giving the law, has said very specifically, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. And yet all of us have rebelled in varying degrees, with varying kinds of energy and all the rest, but still each of us has rebelled against what we know God requires of us. And so by the middle of chapter 3, in verses 9 and following, Paul has reached his conclusion that all are under sin. We need some way for God to justify us freely. If there is no way for God to justify us freely, then we're lost. That's chapters 1 through 3. 
Then beginning at chapter 3, verse 21, and taking us through chapter 4 and chapter 5 as well, Paul expounds then the righteousness of God that is given to us by faith in Jesus Christ. And he tells us the heart of the gospel in chapter 3, verses 21 to the end of the chapter, that God has provided for us in Christ all that he requires of us. And so in giving us one who is righteous... And then in that one, offering himself in our place, bearing the curse of our sin, because he is our substitute, God is able to look upon us, sinners, and declare us to be righteous, and yet remain the righteous, just God that he is, because justice and righteousness has been satisfied by our substitute. He has done for us in life and in death, all that God and God's law could ever require of us. Paul begins to expound that and illustrate it, uh, prove it uh, actually in chapter 4 with the illustration of Abraham, illustration of David. These men are justified by faith, and they pronounce the blessedness of those to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, but rather we receive the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. Chapter 5, we, he gives the illustration of Adam. What we have lost in Adam, our first representative head, we have more than regained in Christ, the last Adam, our second representative head. As I say, it's as far as we got then last time. We did introduce in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, which we've read this morning, this doctrine of union with Christ, but we did just touch on the doctrine itself of union with Christ. And because that is such a controlling theme for the next chapters, I want to take just a minute before we go through chapters 6 through 8. I think it will make our jaunt through these chapters all the easier if we do. So union with Christ. Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not simply one aspect of our salvation. It is the central truth of our salvation. Whatever blessings we enjoy in salvation, we enjoy because we are joined to Jesus Christ being united to him, all of the blessings we have in what we call salvation flow out from the fact that we are joined to Jesus Christ. Maybe it will help us to think for a minute about the terminology that the Apostle Paul uses to expound this doctrine of union with Christ. One of Paul's trademarks is this little prepositional phrase, in Christ. In Christ. You'll see it all the time in Paul's writings. At least once you're alerted to it, you'll see it everywhere. Hardly, I doubt a page goes by without reading Paul somewhere speaking of those who are in Christ. We who are in the Lord or in Him or with Him or through Him. Sometimes the language goes the other direction. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so on. But this matter of union with Christ is dominant in the Apostle Paul's thinking. It is not only a Pauline doctrine, it is something that he learned from Jesus himself. I think he first became acquainted with this doctrine on the Damascus Road itself. You remember when Paul 
met the risen Lord on his way to Damascus, Christ meets him with these words, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus spoke of this at other times as well. He used the metaphor, I am the vine, you are the branches, and we bear fruit for Christ precisely because we are united to him, the vine. There are other metaphors that are used in Paul's letters to illustrate this. It speaks of the church as the body of Christ, Christ as the head, the church united to him in that way, an organic kind of union. He also speaks in terms of, uh, of the marriage union, Christ the bridegroom, the church as the bride, perhaps not as powerful, but serving other purposes. Paul speaks with other metaphors like the building of which Christ is the foundation. He speaks of our being the sheep, he the shepherd. In all of these ways, he's illustrating this truth that we are united or joined to Jesus Christ. And because of our union with him, all blessings that we enjoy in in salvation flow to us because we are in him. Now, there are several connotations to the words. I don't think I'll take a lot of time to go through. But just mention quickly to give you an understanding of of this kind of, of thinking in the Apostle Paul. Sometimes... He'll use this phrase, in Christ, as a kind of simple designation for Christians. Who are Christians? Well, they are those who are in Christ. And so Paul will write to his various letters, greetings to those in Christ Jesus, to the church of God in Christ Jesus at Philippi, or the saints in Christ Jesus at Colossae, or whatever. It's simply a designation for those who are Believers, those who are Christians. Sometimes this phrase in Christ has more of an, can we, can I use the grammatical term, the instrumental sense? The instrument or the means by which certain blessings comes to, come to us? So for example, we find God has blessed us in Christ, with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, Ephesians 1, 3. He has blessed us in Christ. The idea is through Christ. By means of Christ, he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. And sometimes this phrase in Christ, has, here's another grammatical term for those of you who've studied uh, Greek and whatnot, locative sense, the location, the place in which blessings are found. So, for example, if you'd like to look over a page, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are where? In Christ Jesus. The idea is that we've run for refuge, and there's another metaphor that's used in the New Testament, and we're hiding away in Christ and found in Him. There's no condemnation. Paul speaks of this in Philippians chapter 3. His great goal, his great ambition was to be found not in his own righteousness, not having my own righteousness, but to be found in Him. In that location, all blessings, all righteousness is found, united to him. Let me take the time just to drive the point a little more. Keep your hand here in Romans. We'll be right back. But look to Ephesians chapter 1. It's kind of a classic passage where Paul uses this language in different ways. Ephesians chapter 1. 
If you want to have a pen or pencil handy, you can mark the times where Paul refers to this doctrine of our union with Christ. Verses 3 through 14, as you may know, in the original is one long sentence. We've got it broken up for more readability in our English version, but Paul is working through a single thought here of our blessings in Christ. So follow how he explains our blessedness of salvation. Verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, there it is, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then again, verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace that he's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him in heaven and in earth. And then again, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, well, verse 12, so that we were the first to hope in Christ. Verse 13, in him we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Well, you can see that this just dominates in Paul's thinking. Every blessing, every blessing, Every blessing we have in salvation comes to us only because we are joined to Jesus Christ, the Savior, and we enjoy it then in Him. Well, the means of our union with Christ, we see it here in Ephesians 1.4. We come in union with Christ by God's sovereign choice. We are chosen Most understand this, I think, rightly to be chosen to be in him before the foundation of the world. Some emphasize we are joined to Christ by means of his incarnation. That is, he came to be one of us in order to take our place. And then it's very close to that, the idea of substitution. With that, we are in Christ by means of his death and resurrection. That's what's emphasized, uh, we'll see, in chapter 6 of Romans here as well the holy spirit is the bond of our union with christ how do i come into union with him how is this connection made that i come into un- to be united to him answer the spirit of christ himself has come to indwell and he is the bond of our union with jesus and then of course the big emphasis viewing it from our standpoint we come into union with christ by faith And we have this language that is actually somewhat invented by the New Testament writers believing into Jesus as though we've been moving from one realm to another. We believe into him. The same language is used sometime in a way that's been puzzling to many Christians of baptism, baptized into Christ. Again, expressive of our faith, illustrated in baptism, moving from one location to another so that now in Christ all saving blessings come. Well, there's just a thumbnail sketch of what, this, what Paul has to say about this matter of union with Jesus or being united or in Christ. 
Now, in Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have Paul expounding for us some of the blessings, some of the benefits that come to us as a result of our union with Christ. Now, we saw last time in Romans 12, verses Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, that Paul is drawing this great contrast. Adam, our legal representative, our representative head, has acted, as it were, on our behalf. And God treats all of humanity not as a field of corn, everyone standing on his own. He treats all of humanity as a tree, and that trunk is Adam. And Adam rebelled. And all of humanity falls into sin. And all and death passes to all men because all sinned in Adam. But Paul says that's just the first part of the story. The rest of the chapter is to say that whatever we lost in Adam, we have more than regained in Christ. Our second head, the last Adam, who has acted as our representative head and acting on our behalf, lived in perfect righteousness, culminating in that act of obedience on the cross, giving himself for our sin. And so by that one act, all were made sinners. And now by this one act, we are made righteous. By that one act, death comes to all men. By this one act, life comes. And whatever we've lost in Adam, we have more than regained in Christ. And so in union with Adam, there is sin, there's death, there's judgment, there's condemnation. And in union with Christ, by contrast, there is righteousness, obedience, life, peace, joy, and every blessing. In other words, then, there is a judicial sense a judicial dimension to our union with Christ. I am no longer standing in Adam. Or if you like to say, I'm no longer standing on my own. I'm standing in Christ. So that now, united to Christ by faith, God does not treat me as I deserve. He treats me as Jesus deserves. And Paul expounds on that here. Well, he gives that summary statement in verses 18, Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so the one man's obedience, by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And notice then the last statement of, of chapter 20. I mean of chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. We'll see a little bit more of that in a minute. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law came in, pointed up our sin, in a sense even stirred up sin, certainly defined sin to be so sinful. 
But where sin abounded, grace superabounded. Because God does not treat me as I deserve. He treats me because I'm in Christ as Jesus deserves. The benefits of union with Christ. Number one, freedom from death. Freedom from condemnation. Number two, freedom from sin. And this is chapter 6. Paul has expounded the freeness of the gospel. There is a sense. Now be very careful. There is a sense in which we can say sin no longer matters. Why? Because Christ has, has accounted for it all. And I am not treated as I deserve. I am treated as Jesus deserves. Or to put it another way, verse 20 of chapter 5, where sin increased, grace superabounded. Now that in, in turn raises a question that every twisted mind will ask very quickly. If sin no longer matters, in fact, if where sin abounds, grace superabounds, let's sin more so that we have more grace. And that's the question Paul takes up in verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You just got through telling us the freeness of the gospel. In fact, more sin brought more grace. Let's sin more. We'll get more grace. And again, Paul answers this by pointing to our union with Christ. Look at verse 2. By no means... How can we who died to sin still live in it? That is to say, do you think it is possible to be united to Jesus Christ without moral effect? Do you think it is possible in Christ to die, to be raised to new life, without that having some kind of, making some kind of difference in the way we live? It's unthinkable. And so he expands in verses 3 through 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That is to say, join to Christ I am one with him in his death. He bore my curse, took the penalty of my sin. But more than that, I have died with him. The old life is dead. Just as he died, I died. I died with him. And now just as he rose to new life, not only will I be raised in the end time, but already I've experienced this resurrection in Christ. And I've been raised to new life. And I therefore walk in newness of life. I walk in Christ. Or, as he says in verse 2, you think it's possible united to Christ without having some moral effect? In other words, then, union with Christ not only has a judicial dimension, I'm treated the way Jesus deserves because I'm united to him, he's my head, but union with Christ has a what we call a vital 
dimension to it, or sometimes we call it a, an organic dimension to it. I am joined to Jesus Christ so that his life becomes mine. And I live now in Christ. I live now joined to him. So that Paul can say in Galatians chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by, the faith, by faith in Christ Jesus who gave himself for me. How could it be possible then, Paul argues, for a person to be united to Christ and yet ruled by sin? And the point Paul stresses throughout this chapter then is that in Christ, the experiential benefit of it here, the experiential benefit of being in Christ is that sin's grip has been broken. Its rule is gone. Now it's not completely gone. There's still the not yet as well as the now. But it used to be that we were enslaved to sin and that we were not able not to sin not able not to reject Christ. Not able to follow Him with our heart. But now in Christ, sin's grip is broken. And living in Him in this new life, joined to Him, there's a freedom of sin that we couldn't know before. And the very most important truth for us to consider with respect to our struggle for personal godliness, the very most important, the first truth for us to consider with regard to our struggle for godliness is verse 11. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. That is to say, remember who you are. Or, as we have Throughout this passage, Paul is exhorting us to consider, to remember that we are in Christ. And remember that in Christ there, have been, there has been a great change, that sin's grip is destroyed. And what he exhorts us to do then is just think of ourselves in terms of union with Christ. First importance, first importance, it's not flex your spiritual muscles and see how well you can do this week, of first importance, remember I am united to Jesus Christ, and in him sin's rule has been broken. And I have every resource this week to live faithfully before him. In other words, it's Paul's common exhortation. Be what you are. Have you died in Christ? Have you been raised with Christ to new life? Live like it. Remember what you are in Christ. Benefits of union with Christ. Chapter 5, freedom from death and condemnation. Chapter 6, freedom from sin. Now chapter 7. In union with Christ, we are liberated from the law also. Now this is a passage I think that strikes many Christians as a bit strange. All of this talking about being married and then not married and died and under no obligation and the law causing sin and the law provoking more sin and in Christ no longer obligated to the law. And What is Paul getting at here? 
Well, to be under the law, first of all, is to be obligated to keep its commands and to be liable to its penalty. The law, by its very nature, comes to us and says, do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Continuously, what the law does by its very nature is it commands, 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 commands. Here's your duty, here's your duty. And then there's one other thing it can do. Because we don't keep those commands, it condemns and it condemns and it condemns. And so the law says, do this or die, do this or die, do this or die. That's the law. That's all it can do. Now, that doesn't make the law a bad thing. Paul takes that up here. The law is a good thing, but that's all it can do. It has no enabling power. It's not the function of law. Nor does it have any forgiving power. That's not the function of law. It commands and it condemns, and it commands and it condemns, and it commands and it condemns. And this relationship to the law is lifelong. The law can never come to us and say, well, do your best and you'll be all right. The law can't do that. The law can't come to us and say, yeah, well, you've robbed a bank, but you've not murdered anyone, so it's okay. You violated the law. It commands and it condemns and it commands and it condemns and it can do nothing else. Now, Paul takes the analogy of marriage and death. And he says, in so many words, once a man dies, then, of course, the law can no longer condemn him. That's obvious enough. Many of you are old enough to remember, and I will admit that I'm old enough to remember, although I was a very, very young boy at the time, Remember when John F. Kennedy was assassinated? And you remember they caught the assassin. I'm not going to get into the question of whether or not Lee Harvey Oswald really was the guy. That's for another time. Let's just assume they got the right guy for here. So they get Lee Harvey Oswald. Did they prosecute him? They arrested him. Did they prosecute him? No. Why? Jack Ruby beat them to him, right? He comes in, shoots him, and Lee Harvey Oswald is dead. The law can't prosecute him now because he's dead. All right, that's a no-brainer. And Paul is simply speaking like that. The law has this relationship so long as we're alive. And he deals with this under the figure of a marriage. Verse 2. Thus, a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and she marries another man. She's, she's, an, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. So he deals with this relationship to the law under the figure of a marriage. I was married to the law. Or if we can say it this way, my old husband was Moses. I was married to the law. And i got to tell you, it was one bad marriage. 
And all my husband did was command and command and condemn and condemn. But I was bound to it. I was bound to it. Until finally I died. And now I have a new husband. And having, been di- having died, I'm free now to remarry. And I have a new husband. And my new husband is Christ. That's the metaphor. And married to Christ, there's a new kind of freedom that I didn't have. That is, this marriage, marriage to Jesus, is a much happier marriage than my marriage to Moses. And so verses 5 and following, he tells us what it was like to be under the law, to be married to Moses. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, notice this, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Isn't that fascinating? Our sinful passions aroused by the law. You may never have thought of the law as provoking sin, arousing sin, arousing your passions. I suspect if you think about it very long, it becomes pretty easy because every time you see the speed limit signs, the speed limit 35, you think it means 40. And the law says, do this. And you think, I don't have to. And the law says, don't do that. You know, I can do it if I want to. Who are you to tell me? And the law arouses the passions of sin. Now, that doesn't say a word bad about the law. The law is holy and just and good. And Paul affirms that throughout this passage. Nothing wrong with the law, but it does point out something awfully bad with us. But still, this is what it's like to live under the law. Do this. Don't do that. Command. Condemn. Meanwhile, it's arousing passions to do just the opposite of what it wants I'm telling you, it was a horrible marriage. And Paul's saying, now I'm free from the abuses of my old husband. My old husband was such a beast. He would beat and he would abuse me. He would hurt me again and again. He'd point out all the things that I did wrong point out all the blemishes that were growing in my skin, all the wrinkles and all the spots. He pointed them all out. And all the time, commanding and condemning. It's an awful husband. I'd feel like such a failure. And I'd say, help me, help me. (laughs) I can't help you. Command and condemn and command and condemn and command and condemn. But I've died... I now have a new husband, and this marriage is great. And with this new husband, it is so different. He comes to me and says, I know you've sinned, but I love you anyway. Here, let me help you do better. And he gives me the skin ointment to help remove the blemishes, and I have this feeling that one day he's going to present me before his father without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. This is such a better marriage. If I had remained married to Moses, Paul says in so many words, I'd have died an old hag. But now before God, married to Jesus, he loves me, he accepts me, and he enables me. 
to do better. In other words, then in union with Christ, we are free from the law and all of its ill effects. Again, verses 15 and following, the last half of chapter 7, the Apostle Paul tells us what it was like to be married to Moses, trying to do good but not able. What I want to do, I can't. What I don't want to do, I do. It's enslaved to sin, carnal, sold under sin. And then we get to chapter 8, verses 1 and following. He gives us a summary of the benefits of our union with Christ, both in its judicial dimension and its vital or organic dimension. Therefore, now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh judicial dimension verse 4 in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us the vital dimension of it who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit of Christ who's given to us if I'm in Christ if I am in Christ then of course there's no condemnation. I'm as safe as he. And if I am in Christ, then of course there's transformation of life. I participate in his life by the Spirit of Christ that's been given to me. And so finally, we are liberated not only from death and condemnation, liberated from sin, chapter 6, liberated from the law, chapter 7, But for a large part of chapter 8, he expounds the fact that we are liberated also from fear. Verses 12 and following, he expounds for us the enjoyment of our new status. In Christ the Son, we are sons of God. The Spirit of Christ has been given to us to bear witness with our spirit that we are His sons. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. There's this instinctive sense of belonging to God. And not just belonging to Him, but there's an instinctive sense of belonging to Him as His sons. And the Spirit is called the Spirit of Sonship because He's given to minister that sense of sonship to us. And because of this sense of union with Christ, there is nothing ahead but hope. Christ inherit all glory, verses 16 and following, well, then we'll inherit it with him. We are co-heirs with Christ. In Christ, I am as safe as he is. And in Christ, I am part of an eternal plan in which God is determined to bless me in Christ. And I can entertain then no fear that somehow... I won't make it because I'm in Christ. And so he tells us in verses 38 and 39 at the climax of it all. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Could it ever be, could it ever be that God would not love me? Answer, I'm in Christ, his son. How could he not love me? How could I ever be separated from him? Well, these are the benefits of, just, of justification. These are the benefits of being united to Christ. In him, in Christ, chapter 5, there's no condemnation, no death. Chapter 6, we're liberated from sin. Chapter 7, we're liberated from the law. And finally, in chapter 8, we're liberated from fear itself. This is the freedom we enjoy in Christ. Do you see by contrast the awfulness, the awfulness of being without Christ? Sentence of eternal death hangs over us right where we are. Outside of Christ, we're slaves to sin, unable to make a life that's pleasing to God. Outside of Christ, we're slaves to the law and all of its obligations and all of its condemnations. Outside of Christ, there is no hope. The whole force of this is that we rebel sinners who have refused and suppressed all that God has revealed to us, yet has come to us in his Son and has given us the righteousness he requires of us and has liberated us from death and condemnation and sin and the law and from fear itself. In Christ, then there is freedom. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, what glorious treasures we have in the Lord Jesus. We cannot conceive of any higher glory than what is given us in this. We are in Christ. How we praise you for this grace. What a marvelous thing that you have sent us your Son. And Lord Jesus, what a marvelous love you have given that you are willing to come and to take our place and unite with us and give to us all that you've accomplished for us. We praise you, Holy Spirit, for giving us a sense of this. It would have been enough if our God had saved us. It would have been enough then that he had told us about it, but you have done more. You have come to indwell and to give us a sense, an awareness of our blessedness and our sonship in Christ. We pray that you will lighten the step and encourage the heart of every one of your people here this morning in this great gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your hymnals. Uh, stand together, turn to number 441 in the Trinity.